0: Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Strunk, the current president of the AANS, here to share with us some exciting details about the upcoming meeting in Los Angeles uh, this April. Dr. Strunk, I'm so excited to visit Los Angeles. What are some of the local attractions that we can see during the meeting?
1: I think the biggest local attraction, first of all, is the fact that COVID is like has really started to shut down and making it safe for all of us to come travel and come to this meeting in LA. I was very excited when I found out that the um that during my term I would be able to host a meeting in LA because that's a very exciting place for all of us to be. As you know it's the, it's the center of entertainment. It's the center of excitement and because of that I chose two great local hosts, um Linda Liao and uh, Marvin Burke Snyder. I think they're doing a great job. They helped us make some good selections in and around LA that will make this a very fulfilling and very interesting meeting for all of those who attend. So we are in the Marriott Hotel right next to the convention center where the majority of the activities will occur. And it's, this is a clustered meeting, meaning that there is four days that this meeting occurs from Friday all the way through Monday. Uh, you cannot miss the Friday afternoon, uh, Friday evening events uh, because that will be the plenary session, and then following that, we are going to have the open reception uh, reception in the industry hall, where you'll be able to meet and greet your friends in a in an environment where there will be heavy hors d'oeuvres, and you will have a chance to uh, work with the industry while you're doing it and see what the hot, the newest technologies are, and where we are going with neurosurgery in the future, in terms of. Um, bettering ourselves with the equipment that we need and the things that we can do.
0: Great. Well, we at the Neurosurgery Podcast look forward to seeing all of you April 21st to 24th in Los Angeles for the AANS meeting. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
2: Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am super delighted. I'm here at the OVBC meeting, which is an ortho value-based care meeting uh, put on by Zeve Kane in Las Vegas, the beautiful Four Seasons. And I ran into a buddy of mine named Paul Slosar. I've known about Paul. And I've known him for 15 years, I think, right, That's Paul? That's about right, yeah. Yeah. Paul
0: was uh, a very, very well-known, world-renowned uh, private practice. Yep, yep. We had a uh, uh, spine group in the San Francisco Bay Area. We had a fellowship training program. We were in a bunch of trials, a bunch of clinical trials. And we, we managed to stay uh, independent, uh, nestled right between UCSF and Stanford. So we had... Pretty steep competition, but great, great place to practice for uh, 29 years almost. Great, and you're an orthopedist, right? Yeah, I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. Uh, trained in Chicago, Loyola was my orthopedic, and then I did my spine surgery fellowship uh, out at Spine Care Medical Group, where ultimately I spent the rest of my career.
2: Okay, in college and medical
0: school, University of Illinois. Okay, and medical school, Rush, Press St. Luke's. Oh, okay, so, so I know all the guys, uh, you know, back there. So the the Chicago connection is strong, but. California was the last place on the stop. Champagne, urbana Yes, sir. Okay, that's a great, great place. Yeah, we have a
2: lot of overlap. My co-host who's not with us today, JP, uh, he's a resident at Rush. Yeah. Uh, so he'll he'll shout out to JP there. Absolutely. Um, so listen, I, it's so great to see you again, and I, I remember that you were a real leader, as you said, part of many pivotal clinical trials. A lot of arthroplasty, a lot of new technology, right?
0: Yeah, the big uh, the big ones I was in was the the original BP uh, RHBMP, the BMP two study by Medtronic, which really changed you know uh, spine fusion outcomes. And then I had the, the fortunate opportunity to become the chief medical officer for Titan Spine, so I was their CMO for twelve years as we uh, learned about surface technology, nano surface technology, and the integration with bone. So. I spent 12 years, 11 and a half years as their CMO, uh, speaking about the progression of spinal fusion surgery and how the implants can integrate with the bones. So we've had a great run. That technology ultimately was acquired by Medtronic, and I've continued to work with them on a scientific advisory basis but uh, I'm at the value-based healthcare meeting because I've, I've, I've made a recent pivot as we talked about.
2: Yeah, so that that's what I wanted to get into because for, and, and your, your transition was, I don't wanna say it's gradual, but it wasn't abrupt, but you went from being a very busy, prolific, um, you know, cl- research clinician, clinician research, yep. whatever you wanna call it, right? Even though you're in private. And then
0: now you've transitioned entirely out of that realm, right? Yes, yes I have. So. You're right. I I, uh, I, I saw, um, I, I, like, first of all, I had experience in bundle payments. I was in the original, and our group was, in the BPCI program, which is a Medicare-based pilot program, voluntary, and it was basically designed to try to get specialists, orthopedic and spine surgeons, aware of the cost of care and incentivize them financially to help maintain the proper amount of care after surgery. So we did very well and it was an intriguing area to me uh, from an academic perspective. And I started working more with the company as a consultant. I started educating my peers Uh, Alex Vaccaro, who's going to be a guest speaker here tomorrow, invited me to give a talk on bundle payments and value-based health care to the Cervical Spine Research Society last year. That talk is actually available on uh, YouTube videos with the CSRS. And so over time, Mike, I uh, got to the point where uh, I thought it would be important if I'm going to do something else other than spine surgery, uh, this was a great opportunity to pivot. So the company that I work for is called Episode Solutions. It's out of Nashville. And in July, I wound down my clinical practice and I took the full-time job as their chief medical officer uh, for basically value-based healthcare bundle payments. And we're probably gonna be moving upstream to be working with payers and and larger uh, primary care groups to help specialists uh, get in tune with value-based healthcare. Yeah, so that's, that's interesting because in some ways
2: your life timeline, if you will, is what a lot of surgeons would consider somewhat ideal, right? That you've gone from being a very active surgeon, you publish a lot, you're part of clinical trials, and then you had a, a long period of time where you're working very intimately with uh, the, the industry, the medical device industry, which is which right. a lot of us have contact with regularly. Yeah. And now you've transitioned to yet another dimension of healthcare. But But before we get too far into that, I wanna ask you what it's like because um, you're not that, what are you fifty? I turned sixty uh, in July. Oh wow, you look great. Okay, so you, you look, we look the same age. So I thought you were, like fifty five, but so you, but you're still very young. And so, yes. what was it like closing up the shop for you? I mean, to me, like I can't even picture not being a neurosurgeon. Right. And not that you're not an orthopedic surgeon, but yeah. I, I can't. Not that I need to
0: operate forever. I'm just saying, like I don't even know what that would look like. It 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 was a. Uh multi-year journey and I'm very blessed to have a great wife uh, for 34 years this May um, and we talked through it and and to be quite sincere um, you know healthcare the landscape of running a private practice it's changing and the realities I, I practiced in the Bay Area one of the most competitive you know high standards of living expensive places to live and work and we ran a really good practice but it was a combination, Mike, of, of, of the physical and mental fatigue of doing surgery. It's, it's, I, I tell people, you and I are in the same business. It's like flying combat missions. I mean, even routine cases in neurosurgery or spine, anything can go wrong. And when it goes wrong, it's usually a big problem. So it, it takes a toll on people. You don't even realize it till you step away. But I had something else to look forward to. I think it would be much more difficult if I just stepped away into nothingness and so uh, you and I are kindred spirits. It's, it's, it's pretty funny. We're both getting our MBAs. We're both trying to better ourselves in our business skills in order, I think, where I see the opportunity and, and, and the way I was able to come to terms with stepping out of the operating room. It was really, really difficult the last day because I knew it was my last case. And, but I noticed, I got to the point where I was like, you know, I, I'm, I'm now comfortable that I can move forward. But it, honest to God, it took me like six or eight months to not have that sword of Damocles hanging over my head that people don't understand until they've walked in our shoes, that you always have a patient out there. You always have an issue that can be uh, you know, life-changing, that you have to drop everything you do because that's our job. And that um, opportunity to step into something as dynamic as this space, which is really exciting but very challenging, It it at least I had a light at the end of the tunnel to to tack towards.
2: Yeah, you know you're right about that. But what are you doing? What are you doing your MBA?
0: Uh, Dartmouth, the Masters of Healthcare Delivery Science. Yeah, so plug into the uh, MHCDS program. Tuck School of Business? Yeah, Tuck School.
2: <laughs> tuck yeah, Tuck. So it's very it's very interesting because you're absolutely right about the sort of Democles. I was just talking to someone about how if a doctor is killed by a patient, there's like a fifty percent probability that a doctor's a spine surgeon. And not necessarily because we deserve it, but our patients are very unique. And I asked my wife, I'm like, um, like if, if if I turned up dead, if if you weren't the number one suspect, who would it be? She'd go, Well, probably a patient. And I'm like, Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Statistically
0: because, she's a hundred percent. Yeah, because yeah. I
2: got about eight thousand people out there and any given day, you know, somebody's in pain and, and look, I mean people are in pain, they and people are addicted yeah. to drugs and I'm I'm not a perfect person either, so I'm not implying I have no role in this, but you can see how people get to that point as wrong as that is yeah. like the case in Oklahoma last year
0: yeah and and today uh, and just a plug to Mike give a really great presentation today at the meeting but you know he touched on something that that I think for those of you listening who are either spine surgeons or aspiring to go into spine in contrast to you know traditional neurosurgery uh, you know brains and vascular but you know, somebody told me many years ago, I think it was Art White who I trained under, He, you know, he mentioned, he said, when somebody hurts their back, they hurt their soul. And there's, there's, there's a loss there that, um, you know, pac- patients who are in the middle of it become desperate. They often become divorced. They often lose their job. They have substance abuse issues. The, 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 there's always issues in musculoskeletal pain that, that bring in, you know, depression, anxiety, et cetera. But spine, it's a really difficult area. So, you know, it it, it was, it, and you still see this, it's so rewarding to have been able to do that and make positive impacts on most patients. But, you know, it's hard to get a cure yeah. in a spine patient. So we always, I always have, you always have these relationships with patients that go on and on. And, and, and to get back to the question you posed earlier, you know, the technical aspect of spine, I could I could start up again. I could dust off the cobwebs. I, I, I wouldn't take long to, to be back at, at a pretty good level of, of, of technical prowess. But the part that was really the hardest for me was what to do with my patients and my staff. So you know, as I, as I was in my mind figuring out how to unwind out of practice, I made a conscious effort to slow down the complexity of the cases, not bite off cases that might take a year or two to recover. I made sure my my staff, we we merged with a large orthopedic group in the area a year and a half before I wound down, just so that they would have a a place to land. So when you're in private practice, in contrast to a university, you know, you have a little bit more concern about who's going to look after the place when you're not there. So I, I, I really tried to, you know, conscientiously set the table well. Uh, so that the, the landing could be as soft as possible. So, like you're, you,
2: you, at your peak, you were a master spine surgeon. Now you're taking this entirely different role. On,
0: you're a, uh, a executive, if you will. Right. Yeah, I'm the okay. chief medical officer for the company in Episode Solutions in Nashville. Yeah. Okay. So, wh- so going back to the surgery part, to the clinical part, what do you miss the most about it, and what do you not miss the most about it? The uh, well, I came out in 1994 when I finished my uh, fellowship and. You know, you, you and I, like you said, we're not that far in, in age. We've lived through this unbelievable time, these 25, 30 years of spine surgery, where technology and outcomes have blossomed. It's, it's been unbelievable. I mean, we still remember when we were residents or fellows, people would wear a brace for a year yeah. after spine surgery. And now people are doing spine surgery awake or they're going home the same day. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So the part I miss is what's coming next and I found as I got to be 55 and, and close to 60, I was like, do I have another decade? Like, am I gonna re-up my game into the robotics, artificial intelligence, the augmented reality, you know, the technology where the, the young bucks, as it were, the 40 the year olds, 50 year olds are, are harnessing and moving it forward. So I miss the next wave. Um, and I just do miss seeing a patient wake up and say, boy, that was really helpful. Sometimes it's not right away, but, but it's but they're common thankful. that they, they're, they're so thankful. Yeah. So that, that, that personal gratitude that we get daily in the middle of all the difficulties of, of being physicians, you, you can't take that away from us. Yeah. And it, it's a part that through all the misery of, 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 of you know, medicine right now, that, that's an aspect that I think you know, we're very blessed to be able to have. Uh, and and what do you not it.
2: miss? What do you not miss about it?
0: Oh, uh, the, 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 the challenges of, of trying to keep uh, a private practice afloat. The I business mean, side. The business side. I, I, well, obviously, I'm getting my MBA, so I like business. But, like, what, what I think what, what drove me to get this was, like, I was looking at the back of the napkin. I'm like, this is not going to work indefinitely either. We're going to have to merge, which I think there's a lot of uh, benefit to these consolidations in the private space. I, i'm I'm I, I think the jury on private equity is still out i have, I have high concerns that it, it's going to be a mismatch in a few years of, of you're, you're of talking
2: that. about maybe explain because a lot of neurosurgeons they're yeah. not part of that oh so. yeah
0: so I, what I'm what I'm saying there's a very large uh, aggregation of orthopedic groups uh, in in practice who are who are wishing to remain in private practice who don't have a university affiliation and they don't want to work for a health care system so they they aggregate together. They join, they form super groups, and then it's not uncommon for either a private equity group or there's other ways to do it to come in and and they get a big payout, but then the private equity group manages them like a business. But when you get into bed with, with somebody who manages you like a business, there's a fee and there's a cost to that that I don't know that that adds value to the system, but I can tell you pretty sincerely, it's nearly impossible to stay afloat in almost any market now, forget the Bay Area, but any market, if you're a three, four, five person orthopedic group or neurosurgery group, unless you are really anchored and you have a market uh, that is 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 not competitive in terms of other groups uh, clawing at your heels.
2: Yeah, the loss of control to private equity scares me, but I, I, I do see why a lot of people do it. Everybody talking about it's in their 50s or 60s, so they're cashing out, right? That, that's that's a lot of that, right? Yeah. And I'm not trying to throw no, stones up to say. It makes sense people. for them, yeah.
0: but does it make sense? And, and I've seen one of the groups that, that I think uh, has changed and, and did not do that is, is a group in, in my area that ended up combining together and, and steering away from that because they were concerned once that happened the senior leadership exits and the the junior leader the junior new leaders to come in are always behind the till they're, they're 20 or 30 percent behind in revenues every month because they owe that to the private equity people who bought out the senior oh, yeah. partners so yeah. it, it, it's maybe not the best idea um, you know for a business but the, the, the side of this that I see uh, being really exciting and, and why I, I got into the, the, the bundle payments and value-based healthcare is that educating our colleagues, educating residents, spine surgeons, private practice surgeons, even university-based surgeons about the cost of care and all the things that we do that we can do better for our patients with no detriment in care and try to stabilize the cost curve. I think if we don't do it, the government and these large entities, Amazon, um, you know, Walgreens, CVS, they will inflict a business um, yeah, discipline on the system, uh, and the doctors need to be either, you know, at the table or they're going to be on the menu.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like how you're saying that because you really emphasize the cogency, the urgency of the situation, but, you know, the first part of your career, if I could call it that chapter one and two, you're, you're basically tactical. Yeah. Now you're strategic right? Correct. So maybe educate, because some of the folks listening, they're in medical school or they're, you know, they're residents, they don't understand the concept of bundled payments, because that doesn't really exist in neurosurgery yet. No. So let's maybe give a primer, like a brief primer on what that means and and what it means for orthopedics
0: and spine. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, as I said, I I gave a, uh, a, a talk with slides that you can find on YouTube from the, from the Cervical Spine Research Society about bundles. But very basically, a, a bundled payment in the, in the context I'm speaking is the Medicare Bundled Payment Care Initiative, BPCI. So CMMI, which advises Medicare, they're like the think tank behind Medicare. They come up with the creative ideas. They said, hey, we need to get people, specialists, to, to, to hold the cost curve down. They're spending too much money after surgery. So if you are in a bundled payment in that uh, BPCI pilot program, you have a budget. So let's say you do a, a total joint replacement, you do a spine fusion. There's a budget assigned by Medicare, and if you can maintain lower costs through the budget, specifically, don't send any, everyone to inpatient rehab, don't send everyone to a 1,000 visits of physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera, you can keep the savings. So the idea is to use the carrot, you know, and incentivize doctors, first of all, to understand what these things cost, And number two, try to provide the right amount of care for the right patient at the right time. So now bundle payments inevitably shrink. So the the big systems, Rothman, uh, the Core Institute, some of these places that have been very good for very long, when Medicare looks at them, they're like, you have no budget because you guys have been too good for too long. But for the average person out there practicing, there's a lot of room for improvement. So you can save money. The next thing, though, that happens after a bundle payment is you have to start working with primary care docs and say, you know, we'd like to do all of your neurosurgery care. You know, see, I think this is a different, I'm I'm splitting this into spine surgery versus neurosurgery. I I don't know that that the complexity of brain tumors and uh, aneurysms and endovascular neurosurgery is going to be, uh, lend itself to bundles. But the day-in, day-out cervical fusions, lumbar fusions, um, uh, the non-operative treatment of these of these spinal conditions that that you can easily draw, um, you know, a pencil around. Total joint replacements, uh, UTIs, sepsis. There's all these pilot programs that are out there that are helping save money and bend the cost curve a bit. But. It's, this is the first turn on it. So if you learn, I, c- I consider bundle payments training wheels for spine surgeons. If you learn how to manage care and cost and, and the patients tend to do well, you can then get into higher base risk, risk contracts, which is what these primary care groups are doing. They're getting money from the government every month, M- Medicare Advantage, they get a pile of money every month. They say, here's your money, use it if you wish, Keep the profit, so that's what we we refer to as risk-based care, uh, in 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 the value equation.
2: Now, for those of you interested in seeing Paul's video, his last name is spelled Slosar S L O S A R. Please check it out. This is an important uh, trend that's occurring in our national healthcare system. So let me go back to this because I think it's quite interesting to me. You know, I've always pushed back against bundles because. I I felt like it, for very stereotype surgeries like hip replacements, it made sense. People were getting very good at discharging people early and not doing rehab for, you know, inpatient rehab, anyways, for joints. To me, it always seemed like some sort of rationing of care in the sense that I always told the patient that I don't work for the insurance company. I don't work for the hospital. This might end up burning me, but I don't work for the hospital. I work for the patient, right? So, whatever resources they want or need, and it can be excessive, it can be on the borderline of necessary, right? Yep. Like these people with these uh, long-term uh, care plans, all they want is they want a 24-hour person in their home, whether they need it or not, to do the laundry and all that. We've seen that, yep. right? 100%. And, yeah, 100%. And whether that's the right or wrong thing from an actuarial standpoint is a different discussion. But to me, when I look at the spine care, what I, I think is, I'm wondering about is, how is this not just restriction? So when I see a patient who's, who can't walk, because they have stenosis, but they have all these other problems, yep. socioeconomic, um, you know, health issues. And and I know that person's going to be a long time in the hospital. I might say I'll take a pass because on the bundle, this is going to be a loser in the aggregate.
0: Yep. Isn't that what's going to happen? Or am I just totally naive? About no, no. This? I think that, that um, all, of, all of what you set up that um, example with is true and can be true. And in in my experience you know if i look at medicare and CMI, right they're using a, a club to do surgery you know so th- they're the giant force so what they've done is basically uh dropped a big rock in the water and now the ripple effect so i think segregating complex patients out uh what they call carve outs will be a necessary uh reality when you get into you, you you mentioned it beautifully spine patients are different there's no two patients that are alike but the thing that I find doctors do frequently is that we, we, we kind of in our head navigate to those one or two patients that they're the exception and we forget about the eight out of ten that go right down the middle of the plate. Right. And if we navigate to eight out of ten and, 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 and manage them decent in a bundle, there's so much extra opportunity, financial yeah. opportunity left over that, that one patient who has to spend ten days in the SNF or comes back for an infection. It's like insurance. You've already built in, yeah. you know, that amount of, of of padding into your savings. So we never tell our docs to not give the patients the care they need. But what we do is we say you know, navigate eight out of 10 of them like they're gonna just do fine. And surprisingly, yeah. about eight out of 10 of them just do fine.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think in Spine, it's almost like there's a lot of superstition and a little less science. And not that we're not scientific, whereas in other fields, it's like, this is the algorithm, this is known to work. Whereas we're like, no, no, I do it like this. Yeah. You know, like I like to give a for eight yeah. days, not one. Um, so, so tell us now then about episode solutions. So you're the chief medical officer. What, what is Episode Solutions? You, you contract with insurance? Are you a consulting group? Are you an insurance
0: company? Tell us what is Episode sure. Solutions. Uh, Episode Solutions is, is a company that is primarily right now focused on the bundled payment care initiative of Medicare. So we have right now a stable of about 120, 130 doctors that we work with across the country in markets, isolated to musculoskeletal. We have a little bit of cardiac, but most of it's total joints, total hip, replacements, upper extremity, fracture care, hip fractures, et cetera, and then spine bundles. So our book of business is to to try to navigate patients, and what we do is we have a platform that has data analytics, it has nurse navigation, we have an app on our phone between us and our navigators and the patients so we set up a communications platform so that the doctors offices don't need to be bothered with these these patients in the bundle once the doctor and the patient have agreed on the surgery they sign a plan of care a standardized plan of care that we've worked on with them that we anticipate will be under budget and then we navigate the patient for 90 days with a nurse navigator so we we assess the patients from a medical comorbidity social determinants of health medical risk and we work with doctors who are incentivized and will pay attention to the patient and the downstream costs. So the, the the company though is evolving now to where we're in conversations with large healthcare groups, the primary care docs. Now the primary care docs, as I said, they've been bought up by Walgreens, CVS, I mean Amazon, I mean these are these are monster systems, you know. Oak Street Health, Village MD, uh, One Medical, Chen Med. What, I, what our colleagues, what I wanna get across to our colleagues is like they don't understand how much of a land grab is going on behind their backs. The yeah. primary care doctors in Medicare will control these patients and they will decide which doctors are going to take financial risk and who performs well. So the idea of setting, you know, these are the, this is the training grounds for the specialists who wish to do this will move forward with the primary care docs in this environment and i think there's a ton of interest and opportunity especially in musculoskeletal and spine because as eloquently described today you know there's just so much waste there's there's so much variability in care so our goal with episode solutions is to give our doctors data analytics financial uh information we manage the bundle from a clinical perspective and then we uh interface with cms on their behalf
2: well, Paul, I'm sorry again. I apologize to the audience for the, for our listeners about the ambient noise. We're in Las Vegas on a Friday afternoon, so uh, <laughs> in the people, corner, <laughs> some people coming from LA, I'm sure for a bachelorette party. So anyhow, no, that's fantastic. And and Paul, I would love to have you back on. I want to see how this project goes. You and I both know this is a live, uh, unscripted. Um, process and and it's just gl- I'm glad to know it reassured me to hear that you're one of the people out there kind of leading this way to navigate because most surgeons they just want to take care of patients right yeah and so th- that's fantastic we look forward to yeah, having you back it. on the podcast
0: sincerely yeah it was great uh, great to be here and and I'd come back anytime thank <clears> you for having me Michael no
2: problem check out the CSRS YouTube video Dr Slosar has on uh, I'm sure
0: you're gonna learn a lot have a great day disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.